Section 38 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. In this region we continually wander among ruins, and see everywhere around us the relics of the past. Thus a short walk brought us from Cicero's villa to the remains of three temples, those of Diana, Venus, and Mercury. Of the first, one side and a few little cells, called the Baths of Venus, alone remain. Part of Venus's temple stands in the rotunda. It was built on acoustic principles, so that any one who puts his ear to a certain part of the wall can hear what is whispered at the opposite extremity. A few fragments of the rotunda were the only trace left of the temple of Diana. The vapor baths of Nero, hewn out of the rock, consist of several passages, into which it is impossible to penetrate far on account of the heat. A boy ran to the spring and brought us some boiling water. He returned from his expedition, fiery red in the face, and covered with perspiration. These poor lads are accustomed to remain at the spring until they have succeeded in boiling some eggs, but I would not allow any such cruelty, and did not even wish them to fetch me the water. But Herr Brett Schneider would have it so in spite of me. From this place we crossed by sea to Bailly, where at one time many of the rich people had their villas. Their proceedings here are said, however, to have been of so immoral a character that at length it was considered wrong to have resided here any time. Every visitor must be enchanted with the fertility of this region, and with its lovely aspect. A castle, now used as a barrack for veterans, crowns the summit of a rock which stands prominently forth. A few unimportant traces can still be here discovered of an ancient temple of Hercules. Some masonry, in the form of a monument, marks the alleged spot where Agrippina was murdered and buried by order of her son. The immense reservoir built by order of the Emperor Augustus for the purpose of supplying the fleet with fresh water is situate in the neighborhood of Bailly. It is called Piscina. This giant structure contains several large chambers, their roofs supported by numerous columns. To view this reservoir we are compelled to descend a flight of steps. Not far from the before-mentioned building we come upon the Cento Camarelle, a prison consisting of a multitude of small cells. On our way back we visit Sofaltara, the celebrated crater plain, about one thousand feet in length by eight hundred in breadth, skirted by hills. Its volcanic power is not yet wholly extinct. In several places brimstone fumes, whence the plain derives its name, are still seen rising into the air, which they impregnate with a most noxious odor. On striking the ground with a stick a sound is produced, from which we can judge that the whole space beneath us is hollow. The excursion is a very disagreeable one. We are continually marching across a mere crust of earth, which may give way at any moment. I found here a manufactory of brimstone and alum, a little church belonging to the Capuchins, where we are shown a stone on which St. Genarius was decapitated after the bears had refused to tear him to pieces, stands on a hill near the Solfatara. Towards evening we reached the dog's grotto. A huntsman from the royal preserve Astroni accompanied us, and fetched the man who keeps the keys of the grotto. This functionary soon appeared with a couple of dogs, 
to furnish us with a practical illustration of the convulsions caused by the foul air of the cavern. But I declined the experiment, and contented myself with viewing the grotto. It is of small extent, about eight or ten feet long, not more than five in breadth, and six or eight high. I entered the cave, and so long as I remained erect felt no inconvenience. So soon as I bent towards the ground, however, and the lower stratum of air blew upon my face, I experienced a most horrible choking sensation. After we had satisfied our curiosity, the huntsman led us to the neighboring hunting lodge, and to a little lake where a number of ducks are fattened. This man spoke of another and much more remarkable grotto, of which he possessed the keys, and which he should have great pleasure in showing us. Though twilight was rapidly approaching, we determined to go, as the place was not far off. The man opened the door, and invited us to enter the cavern, advising us at the same time to bend down open-mouthed, as we had done in the dog's grotto, and at the same time to fan the air upwards with our hands, so that we might the better inhale it, a proceeding which he asserted to be peculiarly good for the digestive organs. His eloquence was so powerful that we could not help suspecting the man, and it struck us as very strange that he was so particularly anxious we should enter the cavern together. This, therefore, we refused to do, and Herr Brutschneider remained outside with our guide, while I entered alone and did as he had directed. Though the lower stratum of air in the dog's grotto had been highly mephitic, the atmosphere here was more stifling still. I rushed forth with the speed of lightning, and now we clearly saw through the fellow's intention. If Herr Brutschneider and myself had entered together, he would undoubtedly have shut the door, and we should have been stifled in a few moments. We did not allow him to notice our suspicions, but merely said that we could not spend any more time here to-day on account of the lateness of the hour. Our worthy friend accompanied us through a wild and gloomy region, with his gun on his shoulder, and I was not a little afraid of him, for he kept talking about his honesty and the good intentions he had towards us. We kept, however, close beside him, and watched him narrowly, without betraying any symptom of apprehension, and at length, to our great relief, we gained the open road. The royal villa of Portici lies about four miglia from Naples, and we made an excursion thither by railway. Both the palace and the gardens are handsome, and of considerable size. Thence we proceed to Racina. Portici and Racina are so closely connected together by villas and houses, that a stranger would take them for one place. Beneath Racina lies Herculaneum, a city destroyed seventy-nine years after the birth of our Saviour. In the year 1689, a marquise caused a well to be dug in his garden, when, at a depth of sixty-five feet, the laborers came upon fragments of marble with diverse inscriptions. It was not until 1720 that systematic excavations were made. Even then great caution was necessary, as Rosina is unfortunately built upon Herculaneum, and the safety of the houses became endangered. At Rosina we procured torches and a guide, and ascended to view the subterranean city. We saw the theatre, a number of houses, several temples, and the forum. Some fine frescoes are still to be distinguished on the walls of the apartments. The floors are covered with mosaic, but still this place does not offer nearly so many objects of interest as another which was overwhelmed at the same time, Pompeii. Pompeii is without doubt the most remarkable city of its kind that exists. 
A great portion of the town is surrounded by walls, and entire rows of houses, several temples, the theatre, the forum, in short, a vast number of buildings, streets, and squares lay open before us. The more I wandered through the streets and open places, the more I involuntarily wondered not to find the inhabitants and laborers employed in repairing the houses, I could hardly realize the idea that so many beautiful houses and well-preserved apartments should be untenanted. The deserted aspect of this town had a very melancholy effect in my eyes. Though a great portion of the town has already been dug out, only three hundred skeletons have been found, a proof that the greater portion of the inhabitants effected their escape. In many houses I found splendid, tessellated pavements, representing flowers, wreaths, animals, and arabesques, even the halls and courtyards were decorated with the larger kind of mosaic work. The walls of the rooms are plastered over with a description of firm, polished enamel, frequently looking like marble, and covered with beautiful frescoes. In Salust's house a whole row of wine-jugs still stands in the cellar. In the houses the division of the rooms, and the purposes to which the different apartments were devoted, can still be distinctly traced. In general they are very small, and the windows seldom look out upon the street. Deep ruts of carriages can still be seen in the streets. All the treasures of art which could be removed, such as statues, pictures, etc., were carried off to Naples and placed in the museum there. In the agreeable society of Herr M. and Madame Brettschneider, I rode away from Racina at eleven in the forenoon. A pleasant road, winding among vineyards, brought us in an hour's time to the neighborhood of the great lava-field Torre del Greco. It is a fearful sight to behold these grand mounds of lava towering in a most various form around us. All traces of vegetation have vanished. Far and wide we can descry nothing but hardened masses, which once rushed in molten streams down the mountain. A capitally constructed road leads us, without the slightest fatigue, through the midst of this scene of devastation, to the usual resting place of travellers, the Hermitage. At this dwelling we made halt, ascended to the upper story, and called for a bottle of La Crime Christi. The view here, and at several other points of our ascent, is most charming. The hermit seems, however, to lead anything but a solitary life, for a day seldom passes on which strangers do not call in to claim his attention in proportion as they run up a score. The clerical gentleman is, in fact, no more and no less than a very common innkeeper, and partakes of the goodly obesity frequently noticed among persons of his class. We stayed three-quarters of an hour in the domicile of this hermit-host, and afterwards rode on toward the heights, along a beautiful road amid fields of lava. In half an hour's time, however, we were completely shut in by lava-fields, and here the beaten track ended. We now dismounted, and continued our ascent on foot. It is difficult for one who has not seen it to picture to himself the scene that lay around us. Devastation everywhere, lava covering the whole region in heaps upon heaps, fantastically piled one on the other. Here a large isolated mound rises, seemingly cut off on all sides from the lava around. There we see how a mighty stream once rushed down the mountainside and cooled gradually into stone. Immense chasms are filled with lava masses, which have lain here for many years cold and motionless, and will probably remain for as many more, for their fury has spent itself. 
The lava is of different colors, according as it has been exposed to the atmosphere for a longer or a shorter period. The oldest lava has the hue of granite, and almost its hardness, for which reasons it is largely used for building houses and paving streets. From the place where we left our donkeys we had to climb upwards for nearly an hour over the lava before reaching the crater. The ascent is somewhat fatiguing, as we are obliged to be very careful at every step to avoid entangling our feet among the blocks of lava. Still, the difficulty is not nearly so great as people make out. It is merely necessary to wear good thick boots, and then all goes extremely well. The higher we mount, the more numerous do the fissures become from which smoke bursts forth. In one of these clefts we placed some eggs, which were completely boiled in four minutes' time. Near these places the ground is so hot that we could not have stood still for many minutes. Still, we did not get burnt feet or anything of the kind. On reaching the crater we found ourselves enveloped in so thick a fog that we could not see ten paces in advance. There was nothing for it but to sit down and wait patiently until the sun could penetrate the mist and spread light and cheerfulness among us. Then we descended into the crater, and approached as closely as possible to the place from which the smoky column whirls into the air. The road was a gloomy one, for we were shut in as in a bowl, and could discern around us nothing but mountains of lava, while before us rose the huge smoky column, threatening each moment to shroud us in darkness as the wind blew it in clouds in our direction. When the ground was struck with a stick, it gave forth a hollow rumbling sound like at Solfatara. In the neighborhood of the column of smoke we could see nothing more than at the edge from which we had climbed downwards, a peculiar picture of unparalleled devastation. The circumference of the crater seems not to have changed since the visit of Herr Luwald, who a few years ago estimated its dimensions at five thousand feet. After once more mounting to the brim we walked round a great part of the edge of the basin. At the particular desire of Herr M who was well acquainted with all the remarkable points about the volcano, our guide now led the way to the so-called Hell, a little crater which formed itself in the year 1834. To reach it we had to climb about over fields of lava for half an hour. The aspect of this Hell did not strike me as particularly grand. An uneven wall of lava suddenly rose fifteen paces in advance of us, with a whole strata of pure sulphur and other beautifully colored substances depending from its projecting angles. One of these substances was of a snowy white color, light and very porous. I took a piece with me, but the next day on proceeding to pack it carefully, I found that above half had melted and become quite soft and damp, so that I was compelled to throw the whole away. The same thing happened to a mass of a red color that I had brought away with me, and which had a beautiful effect, like glowing lava, clinging to the fissures and sides of the rocks. We held pieces of paper to the fissures in this wall, and they immediately became ignited. Herr M. then threw in a cigar, which also burst into flame. The heat proceeding from these clefts was so great that we could not bear to hold our hands there for an instant. We laid our ears to the ground, and could hear a rushing, bubbling sound as though water was boiling beneath us. There was really much to see in this hell, without the discomfort of being enveloped in the offensive sulphurous smoke of the chief crater. After staying for several hours in and about the crater we left it, and returned by the steep way over the cone of cinders. 
the descent here is almost perpendicular, and we could hardly escape with whole skins if it were not for the fact that we sink ankle-deep into sand and cinders at every step. To avoid falling, it is requisite to bend the body backwards and step upon the heel. By observing this precaution, the worst that can happen to one is to sit down involuntarily once or twice, without danger to life or limb. In twelve minutes we had reached the spot where our donkeys stood. We reached Racina during the darkness of night, having spent eight hours in our excursion. My last trip was to the castle of Caserta, distant sixteen miglia from Naples, in the direction of Capua. It is considered one of the finest pleasure palaces in Europe, and I was exceedingly pleased with its appearance. The building is of a square form, with a portico five hundred and seven feet long, supported by ninety-eight columns of the finest marble. The staircase and halls in the upper story alone must have cost enormous sums, as well as the chapel on the first floor, which is very rich and gorgeous. The saloons and apartments are decorated in a peculiarly splendid manner, with a multiplicity of frescoes, oil paintings, sculptures, gildings, costly silk hangings, marbles, etc. A pretty little theatre, with well-painted scenery, is to be found in the palace. The garden is extensive, particularly as regards length. A hill from which a considerable stream rushes foaming over artificial rockwork into the deeper recesses of the garden, rises at its extremity. Scarcely has this river sunk to rest, flowing slowly and majestically through a bed formed of large square stones, before it is compelled to form another cascade, and another, and one more, until it almost reaches the castle, near which a large basin has been constructed, from whence the water is led into the town. Seen from the portico, these waterfalls have a lovely appearance. From Caserta we drove ten miles farther on to the celebrated aqueduct, which supplies the whole of Naples with water. It is truly a marvellous work. Over three stupendous arched ways, one above the other, the necessary quantity of water flows into the city. This was my last excursion. On the following day, the 7th of November, at three in the morning, I left Naples. Apart from the delightful reminiscences of lovely natural scenes, I shall always think with pleasure on my sojourn in Naples in connection with Herr Brettschneider and his lady. I was a complete stranger to them when I delivered my note of introduction, and yet they at once welcomed me as kindly and heartily as though I had belonged to their family. How many hours, and even days, did they not devote to me, to accompany me sometimes to one place, sometimes to another? How eagerly did they seek to show me all the riches of nature and art displayed in this favoured city? I was truly proud and delighted at having found such friends, and once more do I offer them my sincere thanks. End of section 38